This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 3 A marvelous stillness pervaded the world, and the stars, together with the serenity of their rays, seemed to shed upon the earth the assurance of everlasting security. The young moon recurved, and, shining low in the west, was like a slender shaving thrown up from a bar of gold, and the Arabian sea, smooth and cool to the eye like a sheet of ice, extended its perfect level to the perfect circle of a dark horizon. The propeller turned without a check, as though its beat had been part of the scheme of a safe universe, and on each side of the patna, two deep folds of water, permanent and sombre on the unwrinkled shimmer, enclosed within their straight and diverging ridges, a few white swirls of foam bursting in a low hiss, a few wavelets, a few ripples, a few undulations that, left behind, agitated the surface of the sea for an instant after the passage of the ship, subsided, splashing gently, calmed down at last into the circular stillness of water and sky, with the black speck of the moving hull remaining everlastingly in its centre. Jim, on the bridge, was penetrated by the great certitude of unbounded safety and peace that could be read on the silent aspect of nature, like the certitude of fostering love upon the placid tenderness of a mother's face. Below the roof of awnings, surrendered to the wisdom of white men and to their courage, trusting the power of their unbelief and the iron shell of their fireship, the pilgrims of an exacting faith slept on mats, on blankets, on bare planks, on every deck, in all the dark corners, wrapped in dyed cloths, muffled in soiled rags, with their heads resting on small bundles, with their faces pressed to bent forearms, the men, the women, the children, the old with the young, the decrepit with the lusty, all equal before sleep, death's brother. A draught of air, fanned from forward by the speed of the ship, passed steadily through the long gloom between the high bulwarks, swept over the rows of prone bodies. A few dim flames in globe-lamps were hung short here and there under the ridge-poles, and in the blurred circles of light thrown down and trembling slightly to the unceasing vibration of the ship, appeared a chin upturned, two closed eyelids, a dark hand with silver rings, a meagre limb draped in a torn covering, a head bent back, a naked foot, a throat bared and stretched as if offering itself to the knife. The well-to-do had made for their families shelters with heavy boxes and dusty mats, the poor reposed side by side with all they had on earth tied up in a rag under their heads. The lone old men slept, with drawn-up legs upon their prayer carpets, with their hands over their ears and one elbow on each side of the face. A father, his shoulders up and his knees under his forehead, dozed dejectedly by a boy who slept on his back with tousled hair and one arm commandingly extended. A woman covered from head to foot, like a corpse, with a piece of white sheeting, had a naked child in the hollow of each arm. The Arab's belongings, piled right aft, made a heavy mound of broken outlines, 
with a cargo lamp swung above and a great confusion of vague forms behind gleams of paunchy brass pots the footrest of a deck chair blades of spears the straight scabbard of an old sword leaning against a heap of pillows the spout of a tin coffee pot the patent log on the taffrail periodically rang a single tinkling stroke for every mile traversed on an errand of faith above the mass of sleepers a faint and patient sigh at times floated the exhalation of a troubled dream and short metallic clangs bursting out suddenly in the depths of the ship the harsh scrape of a shovel the violent slam of a furnace door exploded brutally as if the men handling the mysterious things below had their breasts full of fierce anger while the slim high hull of the steamer went on evenly ahead without a sway of her bare masts cleaving continuously the great calm of the waters under the inaccessible serenity of the sky jim paced athwart and his footsteps in the vast silence were loud to his own ears as if echoed by the watchful stars his eyes roaming about the line of the horizon seemed to gaze hungrily into the unattainable and did not see the shadow of the coming event the only shadow on the sea was the shadow of the black smoke pouring heavily from the funnel its immense streamer whose end was constantly dissolving in the air two malays silent and almost motionless steered one on each side of the wheel whose brass rim shone fragmentarily in the oval of light thrown out by the binnacle now and then a hand with black fingers alternately letting go and catching hold of revolving spokes appeared in the illumined part the links of wheel chains ground heavily in the grooves of the barrel jim would glance at the compass would glance around the unattainable horizon would stretch himself till his joints cracked with a leisurely twist of the body in the very excess of well-being and as if made audacious by the invincible aspect of the peace he felt he cared for nothing that could happen to him to the end of his days from time to time he glanced idly at a chart pegged out with four drawing-pins on a low three-legged table abaft the steering-gear case the sheet of paper portraying the depths of the sea presented a shiny surface under the light of a bull's-eye lamp lashed to a stanchion a surface as level and smooth as the glimmering surface of the waters parallel rulers with a pair of dividers reposed on it the ship's position at last noon was marked with a small black cross and the straight pencil line drawn firmly as far as perim figured the course of the ship the path of souls toward the holy place the promise of salvation the reward of eternal life while the pencil with its sharp end touching the somali coast lay round and still like a naked ship's spar floating in the pool of a sheltered dock how steady she goes thought jim with wonder with something like gratitude for this high peace of sea and sky at such times his thoughts would be full of valorous deeds he loved these dreams and the success of his imaginary achievements they were the best parts of his life its secret truth its hidden reality they had a gorgeous virility the charm of vagueness they passed before him with an heroic tread they carried his soul away with them and made it drunk with the divine filter of an unbounded confidence in itself there was nothing he could not face 
he was so pleased with the idea that he smiled, keeping perfunctorily his eyes ahead. And when he happened to glance back, he saw the white streak of the wake, drawn as straight by the ship's keel upon the sea as the black line drawn by the pencil upon the chart. The ash buckets racketed, clanking up and down the stokehold ventilators, and this tin-pot clatter warned him the end of his watch was near. He sighed with content, with regret as well at having to part from that serenity which fostered the adventurous freedom of his thoughts. He was a little sleepy, too, and felt a pleasurable languor running through every limb, as though all the blood of his body had turned to warm milk. His skipper had come up noiselessly, in pajamas, with his sleeping-jacket flung wide open. Red of face, only half awake, the left eye partly closed, the right staring stupid and glassy, he hung his big head over the chart, and scratched his ribs sleepily. There was something obscene in the sight of his naked flesh. His bared breast glistened soft and greasy, as though he had sweated out his fat in his sleep. He pronounced a professional remark in a voice harsh and dead, resembling the rasping sound of a wood-file on the edge of a plank. The fold of his double chin hung like a bag triced up close under the hinge of his jaw. Jim started, and his answer was full of deference but the odious and fleshy figure, as though seen for the first time in a revealing moment, fixed itself in his memory forever, as the incarnation of everything vile and base that lurks in the world we love. In our own hearts we trust for our salvation, in the men that surround us, in the sights that fill our eyes, in the sounds that fill our ears, and in the air that fills our lungs. The thin gold shaving of the moon, floating slowly downwards, had lost itself on the darkened surface of the waters, and the eternity beyond the sky seemed to come down nearer to the earth, with the augmented glitter of the stars, with the more profound somberness in the lustre of the half-transparent dome covering the flat disk of an opaque sea. The ship moved so smoothly that her onward motion was imperceptible to the senses of men, as though she had been a crowded planet speeding through the dark spaces of ether, behind the swarm of suns in the appalling and calm solitudes awaiting the breath of future creations. "'Hot is no name for it down below,' said a voice. Jim smiled without looking round. The skipper presented an unmoved breadth of back. It was the renegade's trick to appear pointedly unaware of your existence— unless it suited his purpose to turn at you, with a devouring glare before he let loose a torrent of foamy, abusive jargon that came like a gush from the sewer. Now he emitted only a sulky grunt. The second engineer, at the head of the bridge-ladder, kneading with damp palms a dirty sweat-rag, unabashed, continued the tale of his complaints. The sailors had a good time of it up here, and what was the use of them in the world he would be blowed if he could see— the poor devils of engineers had to get the ship along, anyhow, and they could very well do the rest, too, Bagosh, they— Shut up, growled the German stolidly. Oh, yes, shut up, and when anything goes wrong you fly to us, don't you? went on the other. He was more than half-cooked, he expected, but anyway, now he did not mind how much he sinned, because these last three days he had passed through a fine course of training for the place where the bad boys go when they die. Bagosh, he had— besides being made jolly well deaf by the blasted racket below. 
the derned compound surface-condensing rotten scrap-heap rattled and banged down there like an old deck-winch, only more so, and what made him risk his life every night and day that God made amongst the refuse of a breaking-up yard flying round at fifty-seven revolutions was more than he could tell. He must have been born reckless, begosh. He— "'Where did you get drink?' inquired the German, very savage, but motionless in the light of the binnacle, like a clumsy effigy of a man cut out of a block of fat. Jim went on smiling at the retreating horizon. His heart was full of generous impulses, and his thought was contemplating his own superiority. "'Drink!' repeated the engineer, with amiable scorn. He was hanging on with both hands to the rail, a shadowy figure with flexible legs. "'Not from you, Captain. You're far too mean, begosh. You would let a good man die sooner than give him a drop of schnapps. That's what you Germans call economy. Penny-wise, pound-foolish.' He became sentimental. The chief had given him a four-finger nip about ten o'clock. "'Only one to help me.' "'Good old chief. But as to getting the old fraud out of his bunk, a five-ton crane couldn't do it. Not it.' Not to-night, anyhow. He was sleeping sweetly like a little child with a bottle of prime brandy under his pillow. From the thick throat of the commander of the Patna came a low rumble, on which the sound of the word Schwein fluttered high and low like a capricious feather in a faint stir of air. He and the chief engineer had been cronies for a good few years, serving the same jovial, crafty old Chinaman with horn-rimmed goggles and strings of red silk pleated into the venerable grey hairs of his pigtail. The quayside opinion in the Patna's home-port was that these two, in the way of brazen peculation, had done together pretty well everything you can think of. Outwardly they were badly matched, one dull-eyed, malevolent, and of soft, fleshy curves, the other lean, all hollows, with a head long and bony like the head of an old horse, with sunken cheeks, with sunken temples, with an indifferent glazed glance of sunken eyes. He had been stranded out east somewhere, in Canton, in Shanghai, or perhaps in Yokohama. He probably did not care to remember himself the exact locality, nor yet the cause of his shipwreck. He had been, in mercy to his youth, kicked quietly out of his ship twenty years ago or more, and it might have been so much worse for him that the memory of the episode had in it hardly a trace of misfortune. Then, steam navigation, expanding in these areas, and men of his craft being scarce at first, he had got on after a sort. He was eager to let strangers know, in a dismal mumble, that he was an old stager out here. When he moved, a skeleton seemed to sway loose in his clothes, his walk was mere wandering, and he was given to wander thus around the engine-room skylight, smoking, without relish, doctored tobacco in a brass bowl at the end of a cherry-wood stem four feet long, with the imbecile gravity of a thinker evolving a system of philosophy from the hazy glimpse of a truth. He was usually anything but free with his private store of liquor, but on that night he had departed from his principles, so that his second, a weak-headed child of whopping, what with the unexpectedness of the treat, and the strength of the stuff, had become very happy, cheeky, and talkative. The fury of the New South Wales German was extreme. He puffed like an exhaust pipe, and Jim, faintly amused by the scene, was impatient for some time when he could get below, 
the last ten minutes of the watch were irritating like a gun that hangs fire. Those men did not belong to the world of heroic adventure. They weren't bad chaps, though. Even the skipper himself... His gorge rose at the mass of panting flesh, from which issued gurgling mutters, a cloudy trickle of filthy expressions, but he was too pleasurably languid to dislike actively this or any other thing. The quality of these men did not matter. He rubbed his shoulders with them, but they could not touch him. He shared the air they breathed, but he was different. Would the skipper go for the engineer? The life was easy, and he was too sure of himself too sure of himself to... The line dividing his meditation from a surreptitious doze on his feet was thinner than a thread in a spider's web. The second engineer was coming, by easy transitions, to the consideration of his finances and his courage. "'Who's drunk? I? No, no, Cap'n, that won't do. You ought to know by this time the chief ain't free-hearted enough to make a spirit drunk, bagosh.' i never been the worse for liquor in my life. The stuff ain't made yet would make me drunk. I could drink liquid fire against your whiskey peg for peg, begosh, and keep cool as a cucumber. If I thought I was drunk, I would jump overboard. Do away with meself, begosh. I would. Straight. And I won't go off the bridge. Where do you expect me to take the air on a night like this, eh? On deck, amongst that vermin down there. Likely, ain't it? and I am not afraid of anything you can do. The German lifted two heavy fists to heaven and shook them a little, without a word. I don't know what fear is, pursued the engineer, with the enthusiasm of sincere conviction. I'm not afraid of doing all the bloomin' work in this rotten hooker, bagosh, and a jolly good thing for you that there's some of us about the world that ain't afraid for their lives. Or where would you be? You and this old thing here with her plates like brown paper. Brown papers to help me. It's all very fine for you. You get a power of pieces out of her one way and another. But what about me? What do I get? A measly hundred and fifty dollars a month and find yourself. I wish to ask you this respectfully. Respectfully, mine. Who wouldn't chuck a dratted job like this? Tain't safe to help me. It ain't. Only I'm one of them fearless fellows. He let go the rail and made ample gestures, as if demonstrating in the air the shape and extent of his valor. His thin voice darted in prolonged squeaks upon the sea. He tiptoed back and forth for the better emphasis of utterance, and suddenly pitched down head first as though he had been clubbed from behind. He said, "'Damn!' as he tumbled. An instant of silence followed upon his screeching, Jim and the skipper staggered forward by common accord, and catching themselves up stood very stiff and still, gazing, amazed at the undisturbed level of the sea. Then they looked upward at the stars. What had happened? The wheezy thump of the engines went on. Had the earth been checked in her course? They could not understand, and suddenly the calm sea, the sky without a cloud, appeared formidably insecure in their immobility, as if poised on the brow of yawning destruction. The engineer rebounded vertically full length, and collapsed again into a vague heap. This heap said, "'What's that?' in muffled accents of profound grief. A faint noise as of thunder, of thunder infinitely remote, less than a sound, hardly more than a vibration, 
passed slowly, and the ship quivered in response, as if the thunder had growled deep down in the water. The eyes of the two Malays at the wheel glittered toward the white men, but their dark hands remained closed on the spokes. The sharp hull, driving on its way, seemed to rise a few inches in succession through its whole length, as though it had become pliable, and settled down again rigidly to its work of cleaving the smooth surface of the sea. Its quivering stopped, and the faint noise of thunder ceased all at once, as though the ship had steamed across a narrow belt of vibrating water and of humming air. End of chapter 3